Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. We are coming at you on March 4th. It is a Friday, I do believe. Um, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, good friend and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm excited for another episode of Start, Sub, Sit after, you know, an exciting mini-series in Orlando. Yeah, well, you can't sit just the series in general. I thought about it, but you can't. Um, I figured that would be a little bit too much of an easy out, uh, a tough out, some might say. But, uh, I mean, have you tried any new beverages lately? That's a, it's an important place to start. I have not tried any new beverages, but I don't. I did not tell you in advance that I have a lightning round of start sub sit food edition prepared oh, for you oh, at yes. the beginning of this pod Incredible. plus it will give it will give people a taste of what start sub or sit is so there are three food items that i'm about ready to present to you okay. one you must start one you must sit oh, and idea. one you must sub so here are the three food items the rice pizza we made oh. last year <laughs> for this podcast the fruit loop mac dog with bacon that was oh sold at the Houston Rockets Arena is item number two. Item number three is the land, sea, and air special on the McDonald's uh, app menu, which is a combination Big Mac, fish sandwich, and McChicken all on one sandwich. Oh, Jesus Christ. Who's your starter, Mark? This is terrible. <laughs> wow. Um... I know who I'm sitting. I, I mean, I'm sitting that rice pizza. That thing was abysmal. I'm sorry. I know you oh didn't my. hate it. For me, that was like, it just left a bad taste in my mouth the entire day. I was not a fan whatsoever. So I'm definitely sitting that bad boy. Um, adding three types of meat like that, that is nasty. Um, and I don't like Big Macs already. I don't like fish sandwiches um mcchickens are fine but i just don't really eat mcdonald's like that um Let, i guess let's i'll sub- frame it let's frame it this way the start you must eat the entire thing oh god oh the wow. sub okay. you just have to eat like half of and the sit you don't have to touch you don't even have to touch it so this makes it even harder because that mac dog is a it's massive um b that's just way i mean like i feel like i would have to go get my blood pressure checked after i ate it um not like it's going to be much different. I think I would have to start the, the McDonald's conglomerate sandwich thing because it's a little bit less food than uh, than a Mac dog. So it would be easier to eat. And uh, the Mac dog thing, like, that's just – there's a lot going on there. I I feel like that's the kind of thing – like, and I don't – I maybe this is a hot take. I don't like hot dogs, we're being honest. No. I like, I like brats. Not a big fan of hot dogs. But, um, yeah, I think – this is like, wow. This is like, do I want to cut off my hand, my foot, or my ear? This is that's that's like this is the kind of level we're at. Uh not, none of this is positive. Um, so yeah, I would go uh, I would go to the the McDonald's uh monster sandwich, um, the Mac As Dog. Your start. Yeah. Then the for, Mac Dog is your sub. And then and the, the rice the pizza. Rice is your pizza sit. is so totally my sit. Um I think that we're the exact opposite because I'm really? starting that rice pizza. That rice pizza is gonna be the star of my team. The reason <laughs> you didn't like it is because you made it in the image of Skyline Chili. Like I can finish the right the rice pizza if I have to. Like I don't want to make it just to make it, but I can eat it. I'll sub the land, sea, and air because I can just peel off two of the layers. I'll just pick one if I only have to eat half of it. Well, you and didn't the, say I could do that. I said you only had to eat half, Mark. Oh, I do only. Okay, all right. I didn't think about that part. And I'm benching forever the Fruit Loop. That is like the puppy monkey baby of food. It is what <laughs> evil tastes like. It is what evil tastes like. Like when you brought up that we could make that for the pod in jest, there was a shiver that went down my spine. I, I just, I'm not eating that. I yeah. don't like hot dogs. Um, like it's some weird. 
hybrid trail mix on top with fruit loops and bacon together i don't i'm not i'm not about that this is going to get me in trouble but bacon is very overrated i don't i don't think bacon is that good for being honest i don't know mark that's a pretty that's a tough take i think we might have to edit that out of the pod (laughs) It's fine, but it's just, it's not what everybody makes it out to be. Like, I mean, it's I don't not think... salvaging this thing. Well, yeah, it's definitely not. It's just, I feel like most of the time, though, bacon's either too crispy or too soggy, too thin. That's true. It must be prepared at the yeah. right amount. It has to be like, there's got to be, like, it can't be flimsy, but it also can't be like, like, you know, like, uh, I, and now, as you know, analogies are not my strong suit, but um yeah it's it's a it's a breakfast meats are just kind of overrated in general i'd rather have eggs so that's that's, you know, that's my hot take you know what's not overrated uh the- talking about the pacers <laughs> well are you sure yeah i guess we can we can dive into it um yeah the pacers got their heads absolutely bashed in the first game against the orlando magic it looked like it was happening again in the second game and they won in overtime uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go through our start sub sit, uh, much like we just did with uh, with the three nasty foods uh, over this this wild two game mini series against Orlando. Caitlin, I will let you start. Who do you want to start, or what what do you want to start? Wow, just going straight to me. Yep. Okay, so I am going to start from game two in the fourth quarter. The timeout that the Orlando Magic took with seven minutes and 28 seconds left to play Mm -hmm. because from that point forward, the Pacers outscored the magic 30 to 17 and Orlando shot eight of 24 over the final 12 and a half minutes. And we're all of seven from three with four turnovers and zero assists. So why I found that significant was, and why I wanted to pick that timeout in particular is I believe it was the defensive possession that the Pacers played either one or two before that where Jalen Smith was on the floor and they orchestrated getting a switch for Jalen onto Terrence Ross and Terrence Ross banged in a three at the top of the key. Then I think that the Pacers scored again. And then that's whenever, or there might've been one extra possession after that. And then that's whenever Jamal Mosley called for the timeout. When the Pacers came out of the timeout, our podcast prayers were heard Mark, because I don't know if you remember what happened, but the Pacers stopped switching at the five spot after that timeout for the rest of the game. Yeah. For the rest of the game, there was no more switching. So when Jalen Smith and Ijax were at the five, they started playing and drop. And with Ijax, they were in a very deep drop. Sometimes I would probably say he needed to be higher, especially when Cole Anthony was coming off some of those picks. But what materialized out of that that I really liked and wanted to include here is that Tyrese Halliburton was a monster away from the ball defensively over those last several minutes. I mean, I clipped a play yesterday and I wanted to give credit to Isaiah Jackson because in the third quarter, he bit really hard on a pump fake from Wendell Carter Jr. and like needed a parachute flying past. And then Wendell passed it to the corner. They gave up a corner three on like the last possession of consequence defensively and regulation. That same scenario played out. He stayed down which was, you know, progress for him to have done. And and he prevented Wendell Carter Jr. from dribbling into the paint. But if you only focus on that, you miss the fact that Tyrese prevented the ball handler from getting it back from Wendell Carter, like through two passes. Then once he did, he forced him further out away from the basket and they got a shot clock violation. And then when they got into overtime, people I'm sure remember the two blocks that he got where, you know, I think that Cole Anthony was trying to do a little too much a couple times where he probably could have dribbled just right off the pick and gone into his pull-up too with Ijax way back, but he, like, wanted to snake it to get the defender on his back. And then Tyrese, they just allowed to be super active with stunts and coming over to help on those pick-and-rolls. So that's how he got the block, the one of the block shots, and he blocked another one when somebody was in the shooting motion from behind. Um, he stunted when Wendell Carter Jr. or Mo Bamba popped and prevented that so that Ijax didn't have to come out of the drop. So, I mean, we've been kind of wondering over these, and I even wondered it from game one with some of the ways they were using Isaiah Jackson, if if he could handle playing more drop coverage, because I, in particular, have just kind of not liked seeing how much they're switching the fives out, unless it's a late switch. And they did some late switching where they would switch and switch back in the drop. But... Um, I liked seeing that development. I liked seeing Jalen and Ijax both get a chance to do that. And I think that it did 
change things for them because prior to that in the game, their switches were getting wrecked again. They end up with two on the ball a lot. Then they give up easy slips to the basket. They weren't communicating well in a lot of those situations. And that doesn't mean that they weren't um, switching with the guards out on the perimeter, but just keeping the fives at home closer to the basket, I thought was helpful, at least in this particular matchup. And the other thing that it benefited was that like Malcolm got to stay and not be switching out as much away from Franz Wagner. And he was really the only person who was defending him somewhat serviceably. So I'll let you say what you wanted to say about that. Yeah. I mean, you actually stole my start. My start wasn't the timeout, but my start was Ajax not biting on Wendell Carter's pump fake. Like it felt like he bit on that like double digit times throughout these two games. And then finally on that, that last glorious possession with 26 seconds less left, he does not bump on the pump fake. Uh, and like, honestly, like it sounds like easy to, to deduce it down to this, but if he does, I mean, that that's a basket, it's a basket yeah. of free throws. And um, honestly, Pacers do not win that game without it. Like, I, I don't know. Like I I'm, I'm right there with you. I felt like, um, I mean, it's tough because one thing I'm trying to, to learn and figure out, like, I feel like, uh, especially for, for young bigs, learning defense has got to be like the, yeah. the lengthiest process that I can think of in the NBA, like for, in terms of development, like miles just started using his hands a lot. I mean, like consistently, um, in drop, you know, when like to deter ball handlers, like last year, I felt like was the first year that he really did it consistently. And Ajax has done like a little bit of it. I think he's starting to to at least just grasp more of positioning and how to, you know, use his length and 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 size. And um, it felt like a like not a great defensive miniseries from him, but you saw the flashes of like like you mentioned, like seeing some more of the ability for him to play outside of just a switching scheme. And I I was really I was really pleased with that. Obviously, he fouled out, which is you know you know you never want that, but I do think we saw some progress from him, which was really cool. Yeah, because especially because one of my things after we I rewatched the first game and was preparing some of my thoughts for this, like he had some moments where he was really lost in the first yeah. game. Um, one where they gave up a three on Gary Harris and he was kind of just like a moth to the flame following the ball around and was way out of position. Um, and he's had moments like that where he gets kind of lost at sea and where he's supposed to be. So. Um, just seeing him be able to drop back, I think, was fairly big, even then finishing the same way with Jalen. I mean, I don't think that that's going to be – I don't know how successful that will be against every opponent because, I mean, let's face it, Orlando and Indiana are in similar positions and that this is veering – you know, they're both in rebuild. It's both about taking baby steps with what players they have and making – I'm not going to say that everything the Pacers did defensively over that last 12 and a half minutes was about the Pacers and not about, you know, various Magic players sometimes. Um, making mistakes. I thought Jalen Suggs made some mistakes late. Um, they could have made things easier. I don't know that you're going to be able to drop Ajax that far back against every team, but um, just seeing them have a defend or have him defend in a different way because of what they've been giving up with some of the switches with the center out, I thought was important, but I mean, we've covered our starts. I One thing, since we are talking about the end of the game too, a little bit, I wanted to know what your reaction was when Brogdon was at the line, made the first free throw, and then they made the decision to put O'Shea in for Jalen. So the lineup then with with Brogdon having made one of two free throws was Brogdon, Buddy, Tyrese, Dwayne, and O'Shea at the five while Mo Bombo was still on the floor. Like, that's a tough decision for the coaching staff. Like, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them for making it. Like, they just must have had that much confidence that Brogdon was going to make both free throws, which he is, like, what, an 80 85% free throw shooter this year. But, like, they had to have thought that he was going to make both because they obviously went very small thinking they were going to be up by three and that they'd be able to get out to the perimeter and, and switch all five with O'Shea at the five. And then, as it turned out, Brogdon missed the second one. They got down the floor quickly and there was no way that O'Shea was boxing out Mo Bamba and he got that put back and then the game was tied. It kind of made me wonder like, you know, was Jalen going to be that much of a drawback to get out to the perimeter if Brogdon had made the second free throw? Because at least you would have had his rebounding still on the floor. But I don't know. What did you think about that? Yeah, it was a little bit surprising. Um, Especially like, I mean, like we've talked about the front with the front court the last week or so, um, like 
when you have that many options and we i'm sure Gogo will come up at some point mm-hmm. but when you have that many options in the front court and then you say okay we'll just play oshay at center i thought it, it was weird to me especially like you mentioned like Mobamba is not the most physical guy, but he's still seven feet tall and he's a solid offensive rebounder. Like you can't just, I mean, I thought going down to O'Shea was a little bit questionable, um, especially considering too, I don't, I don't want to dog O'Shea. Like I didn't think he was terrible, but offensively he really struggled these two games. Part of it is, I mean, it is Orlando. Like even if Orlando's not a great defensive team, especially with their starting lineup, they have a ton of length and they're good at switching. Um, well, not good at it, but they have like, you know, when they're, when they're fully active, um, they have some problems, which is something that'll come up later too. But yeah, I, I'm there with you. I, I was, I was a little bit questioning of that. Yeah. I, I just thought, I mean, it's a tough one because like I said, they had to have anticipated that they were going to make both free throws and be mm-hmm. up by three. But at the same time, I think I probably would have just lived with Jalen being able to close out and risk that, you know, they might tie it versus, you know, taking the gamble. Cause if, if he missed it, like they did, then you were making yourself somewhat vulnerable to what ended up happening, but all right, well, let's just head right to the substitutes and just to clear it up. The sub is going to be like, we're cautiously optimistic about something or, or we, you know, are somewhat on the fence about it. So my substitute, strangely enough, because Chris Duarte ended up going out, which I don't know if you would have seen this, but on the Orlando Magic broadcast, when Chris came out of the game, the training staff immediately came down to him and through like sign language, you could see that he was communicating. Like when I move on straight lines, I'm okay. But when I'm cutting or doing anything laterally, it hurts. And then they were looking down at his toe and he went back to the locker room and he clearly didn't play the rest of that game and didn't play on Friday either. But not having him, not having Brogdon, and all the people who are already out, like I felt like game one was actually sneakily informative in certain ways with what because they had to play different combinations that we don't really get a chance to see that much. So like they started Jalen and Ajax together in the first game. So O'Shea was full time at the three. And a lot of that game, which is why I'm glad that you brought up that he kind of struggled across both of these games in comparison to what happened in Boston and especially in game one, because I felt like, and we've seen O'Shea play at the three and other times this year, clearly they've closed a few games with him at the three, but in this particular matchup for what you said, um, him drawing, like even Franz Wagner, him being guarded by Okiki, sometimes smaller guards, I felt like he struggled to get into the paint a lot more than what we saw in Boston, which that was clearly about him making the six threes too. But he does better with how aggressive he is as a driver when he's matched up against bigger fours and can kind of use his quickness to get to the rim and maybe draw a foul. And in a lot of this one, I clipped a bunch of them he couldn't get past his initial defender to even get into the paint. So it was like one or two dribbles, kick it out. Um, I didn't think he had quite the same impact in a lot of those lineups. That was one. So basically my sub as a whole is seeing guys in unique positions that we don't always get to see them play a lot of time at. So also something that happened in that game and garbage time, which I know it's garbage time, but still Gogo was out there with Ijax. And when Gogo's on the floor, he's definitively being defended by the five. So we got to see Ajax at the four a lot more than we have um, in in most instances. Because when he's out there with Jalen, it's more of a toss-up about who's going to guard who. Um, Trying to look at my notes to see. I believe that – let's see um, how they matched up. Yeah. So Mo Bamba defended Ajax and and Wendell Carter Jr. defended Jalen. So – um, or I mean, Ijax defended Mobamba and Jalen guarded Wendell Carter Jr. Like it, it was more back and forth is my point. It's not always yeah. 100% who's going to be defended. So also who was out there on the floor, which you brought up on the last podcast, Terry Taylor was at the three. So there was a Goga, Ijax, Terry Taylor front line over the last like five minutes of that game where you got to see Terry Taylor try to do a little bit on the perimeter. Like it wasn't a huge sample size, but um, it did make me wonder when I was watching those minutes and not that we're looking to a Goga, like we know what Goga's experience was over these two games. It was more that he was just a placeholder. Um, Ijax tried to do something in face up. He got to duck in against a smaller guy on a switch as at the four spot that, I mean, the face up was a little bit iffy. I mean, I think he ended up getting a traveling call or I don't remember what exactly happened, but 
Um, at the other end, the one thing that I wondered before they put him in the deep drop was sometimes because his defense is as unprincipled as it is, if it wouldn't be better for him to be getting assigned to like the low usage forward or wing and kind of just let him roam with his weak side shot blocking ability. And that doesn't always end up being the case because a lot of times they'll play zone or they'll switch with him. But um, if they play stuff straight up, I've, I kind of wondered when I got to see that little spot, if, if that's something that could work for him in certain matchups to try to mask some of what his defensive flaws are while also kind of highlighting what, what his strength is, which is his recovery speed going toward the basket and is his, his foot speed. So, and his ability to cover ground, but yeah, I mean, I'm in the same boat with you. I want to see a lot more of that. Like that's uh, obviously, I mean, they're different players, but kind of same principles. Um, like what the Celtics have done with Robert Williams this yeah. year, like playing him off of, you know, the, 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 the lowest usage player on the floor so that he can just roam and muck things up. And I think like, well, I do think Ajax can get to a place where maybe he is a solid drop defender at some point. I agree with you. Like, I think his best tools are getting to just be a disruptor, like actually getting to just use his length and recovery and his timing and 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 have some impressive moments like that. I want to see more of that. Like, that's part of the reason I'm very interested, excited, however you want to put it, to see him play with Miles Turner. Because, my, I mean, Miles is so clearly a five. You're not going to ask him to not be the drop defender. Right. Um, I really want to see what that looks like because I do like, not that I think it's going to be elite defense or anything, but with how good miles is at his best, like that makes it a lot easier for somebody like Ajax to, to be a little bit more, um, undisciplined is the wrong way to put it, but a little bit more rangy and, and just be active off the ball. So I want to see that. Um, I'm definitely in concurrence with you. I just wish Terry Taylor had played more. I almost was really annoying and said, start Terry Taylor. Cause I want to see Terry Taylor start, but, um, it just good things happen when he's on the court. I, I don't like I'm at the point where and I don't know, maybe it felt like it happened in the in the second game. But I mean, are we encroaching territory of Terry Taylor playing over Goga? The Goga experience. Yeah. I mean, Goga, yeah. Goga very easily could have been. I mean, he's the lowest hanging fruit for the sit at this point. I mean, I don't yeah. think that his stock has ever been trading at a lower level than what happened in that game the second yeah. game. Um, even if you look at the first game, oh, let's just run down some of what happened over these two when Gogo was on the floor. One thing that I really enjoy about Rick Carlisle's offense is that they run a lot of plays where... They don't run plays. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. They run a <laughs> lot of actions, a lot of simple base actions that look... They all start with the same alignment, but there's a somewhat slightly different variation that they're going to come out to and what they do out of it and win. So um, as we've seen clear, you know, even when Turner and Sabonis were both healthy and playing, they still run some of the same plays. So like if they're setting a stagger, it used to be that they were both positioned at the elbows. Now more so it's like motion strong, but just envision a stagger and the weak side cutter is going to come off of it toward the ball. And then they go to that side and then they'll pass it right back to the guy who passed it to them. And then that guy goes off a pick. Like you can pretty much book that that's what they're going to run and that's what's going to happen. But then every so often they'll put in different wrinkles. So um, I believe it was in the third quarter where they had the exact same setup only the player wasn't going to clear and Goga was supposed to go up and just screen for the ball. And then it was going to become Spain rather than that more Iverson look. And Terry Taylor, you can hear in the wing telling Goga, go, go, like you're supposed to be running the action. And Goga was thinking, no, you're supposed to be running over the top. And it was just, it was interesting and notable that Terry Taylor, who's on the two-way contract, was having to tell Goga what to do in order to run what variation they were getting into. And then that was the exact same play where Tyrese then coming off the Spain throws the lob to Goga that he doesn't catch. And like, I think Tyrese afterwards kind of took the blame and was like, you know, it's just me needing to get to know my various teammates and what I, what sort of passes they need and what I should be throwing. And it's like, if you watch that playback, I really don't know why Goga couldn't catch that. Like it wasn't even that high of a lob pass. He wasn't getting held and it just went right over his head out of bounds. So that was one. Then in the second game, like he just <laughs> yeah, started yeah. out and Wendell Carter Jr. Just completely dislodges him, yeah. defending him in the post, like just absolutely bullies him. 
the transition play where Cole Anthony stole his lunch, I like that was cringe. I had to look away. That was awful. Um, like he had he had O'Shea Brissett wide open on the wing as he was dribbling. Like just advance it. Like point Goga is not point Sabonis. We don't know. Like that that can be retired. And then he was in the post again in the first game. Got called for another hooking foul, like he did against Boston when he was trying to post. And then late in the garbage time, like they were switching pick and rolls between Kiefer and Goga. Why would those two individuals ever switch anything? I, I I don't know. Like, so Goga only ends up playing two and a half minutes, I believe, in that in that second game in the first quarter and then doesn't play the rest of the way. And it's just tough to say because the more Jalen Smith, who finished with 15 and 15, and I felt like had a very strong two-game miniseries overall, plays well, he's kind of outpricing himself for the Pacers and Goga's already been opted into for this year. So unless they do like a TJ leaf and move on from Goga, it's kind of tough to say whether Goga should be completely out of this rotation or if you need to let him play through some of this, because the guy who, I mean, I don't disagree with Rick Carlisle. If you're trying to win a game, I totally understand what his rotation was. And I totally understand rewarding Jalen for the way that he's playing. It's just a tough spot because of what the contract situation is. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I, it's, it's hard. It's like, and I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if somebody's listening to this podcast for the first time, I think I absolutely hate Goga. As you know, I've been on the Goga train for a long time. Like I, we just needed to see him play, but I think this is seeing him play has been, has been eye opening in some ways, but I also think like, you know, like we've talked about, this isn't just entirely like a, well, this is just who he is type thing, but um. I do think it is interesting too. Not that I think uh, Terry has some massive upside or anything, but he's just a good basketball player. And um, I mean, he's the same age as Goga. Like, no, he wasn't a, a you know, a, a top 20 pick, but um, I, I feel like he's a jump shot away from being a very solidified rotation player. Like I think he already is, but if he wants to play for Rick Carlisle, it feels like he's really going to have to have a jump shot. Um, that's, you know, just considering, especially when the team's fully healthy. Um, cause I feel like if he was at least shooting from the corners, I feel like he would be playing more to a degree, but, um, yeah, it's, a it's an odd situation. Um, shout out to, to, to Jalen Smith hitting transition pull-up threes. Trailer threes. Yeah. That <laughs> was, was like, almost my start. Yeah. I thought about it. Um, he hit two in, in the, was that the second game he threw or the was it, it was the first game he hit two, yeah. but regardless, right like his shot has just been very, very good. I think, yeah, he's shooting. I don't think it's actually this level of good, but no, it's it it looks really good, and he's comfortable. Like he he can relocate a little bit. He's not amazing at it, but like forty five percent from deep on four per game. It's only in eight games. It feels like it's been more than eight games, but um, you're right. I mean, he's just been playing well. Um, are you ready for my sub? Because that actually feeds yes. into my sub. Yes. Um, my thing that uh, and the, it kind of. It felt like it went away during these two games. It actually did not, um, surprisingly. But the Indiana Pacers, quietly a good rebounding team post-trade deadline, um, which seems obvious or whatever because, you know, they added more bigs and they've just been healthier in the front. Well, they haven't been healthier in the front court. But they're playing a lot of guys who can get rebounds at, at least. But, I mean, considering that they traded away their best rebounder, and who was a big part of them, like actually being able to rebound at all, um, considering the rebounding problems that they have had. Um, they're 10th in defensive rebound percentage since the trade deadline, sixth in offensive rebound percentage. Like Jalen is a very, very good rebounder. I know we've talked about that before. Um, Ajax has a lot on the offensive glass. I mean, playing Terry Taylor more has been part of that too. But um, overall, that like Tyrese is a he's not an amazing rebounder, but he'll at least like fight for position and Feel like he's good at, at, at you know especially at pushing the break off rebounds too um like overall they've been a solid rebounding team i don't think that they're actually that level of good as a rebounding team for being honest but it's a it's a giant step up from where they were earlier this season and have been over the last couple of years so that's been something that i found a little bit encouraging um it felt like though in the orlando games i think they tied in rebounds in both games i don't know that they at least did in the second game it felt like they got absolutely demolished. I feel like if I remember correctly, it was like the starting lineups got 
massacred on the glass because I think Wendell had like 40 combined rebounds close to it in the two games. I made 18 two days ago. He was insane, but um, yeah, I've, it, it's, it's something that I'm intrigued by because it is, it is nice to see. Which is interesting when you play quarters like the third quarter in the first game <laughs> yeah. when the Pacers only attempted 12 shots. Like, there's not even that many more rebounds to go around. But, I mean, O'Shea's been active on the glass as well. I mean, mm-hmm. he got that really big offensive rebound in the overtime. So, um, what's interesting about it is I agree with you. Like, Terry Taylor, Jalen, a lot of guys who have been positives on on the glass – it makes you question when the team's fully healthy, if that advantage will still fully be there, depending upon how they envision the lineup, because you could very easily go from, you know, they started Jalen, Ijax and O'Shea in the first game against Orlando. And don't get me wrong. It's going to be a talent upgrade when those other guys are healthy and overall talent upgrade. But if you go from that to potentially, you know, Tyrese Duarte Brogdon or, you know, take out Duarte and put Buddy and TJ Warren and Miles Turner, the rebounding might uh, yeah, it's be somewhat disappear of an very issue quickly. again. Like that, that advantage won't quite so much be there. And then off the bench, you know, you could still, you know, depending upon what ends up happening with Jalen, you might still have Jalen. I don't know. You know, Jalen O'Shea is your backup rotation there. I don't, I mean, who knows if TJ Warren is even going to be on this team next year since he's in a contract year. It's very hard to project, but you can see two very different iterations playing out there where it could be a strength and it could be a weakness next year, depending upon how they see things. I mean, there are some moments too, where it's interesting that they are holding their own because there's some times where I feel like some of their leak outs could be um, making them vulnerable on the glass and they've survived it, even though they've been using as many advanced passes as they have been in transition. So that's a good one to continue monitoring. If any of these guys do end up playing any games, which I don't know if that's going to be the case at this point in time yeah well it's funny it's it's kind of crazy too because i uh like obviously strength isn't a huge it's not everything in rebounding but i wrote in my notes yesterday um the pacers front court has a well and it's not just the front court it's the entire team the pacers as a team have a collective strength of zero like i mean they just got bullied in both those games other than malcolm like i think malcolm and terry pretty much hold up strength wise but like Tyrese, as much as he was good off the ball defensively, oh my God, he got destroyed on the ball defensively. Like Jalen Suggs, just that part of it is like he definitely does some, some, some crafty foul drawing stuff uh, or stuff that would, you know, I think if you're at different levels, maybe he's getting called for fouls. But overall, like it just felt like the the strength gap between the two teams was like eye-opening i was like oh my god especially with i mean wendell carter was was nuts um he got whatever he wanted inside the paint um so that was like that was another thing that i thought about yesterday and it was that's kind of why that's why i wanted to put rebounding and sub because it's just like they're getting the rebounds i just am not sure how sometimes like this team really has a, a massive strength deficit that that pops up in so many aspects of the game obviously the point of attack on defense um, so yeah, and it's, it's just a very odd stat. Not to harp on Goga again, but like if yeah. he just, but like, this is the thing, like in theory, physicality should be like, if you're looking at what edge does he have over any of the other options, they can be playing at the five. He should have somewhat of an advantage in the form of physicality, just like when they played Boston. And I thought, you know, maybe they played him more minutes because they did try to post him some in that game. They did try to post him a couple times in Orlando. And it's like he's just not being able to leverage his strength, just like Wendell Carter Jr. dislodging him. And it's not even even just like the attempt to post him. One thing that he could do that I think would help and that some of the other bigs, I, I saw Jalen and Terry both trying to duck in a few times, too. And if they don't immediately get the ball, which this this could be a narrative from the entire season of watching, whether it was Miles, whether it was Sabonis, whoever it is, the bigs will duck in, they don't get the ball. And then they eventually just back out like, all right, well, I'm not going to touch it, even though they've established early position. Sometimes in these two game series, I wanted Jalen or Goga or even Terry Taylor, like continue to stay in the paint, not to demand the ball, 
But to create a driving lane for Brogdon or for Tyrese Halliburton to get to the rim, because if you're there, like, especially if there's a two side, you've ducked in and you're holding your guy off, then Brogdon can go right into the basket. Like it seems counterintuitive that a duck in could be a way to create space, but it very much could be. And like, there was one specific moment where Goga attempted to do that on one of O'Shea's drives. And they basically collided because Goga wasn't holding the guy back. Yeah. That like, was this painful. is like, and this is on Obama just swatted that shot back to Indiana. So yeah. And like, that should have been an advantage. And that's what I'm saying. Like if Goga could be like Terry Taylor and Goga's body. Oh my like, God. It's an all-star. Would, yeah. He would have an advantage of something. That's like, that's a, that's a verifiable skill for a reason that we would play you. Like, I just want him to play a little bit more physical, but I totally get what you're saying. Like there were times in the Boston game and with Jalen where he had a switch like against Peyton Pritchard or I forget which guard it was in this game where like he couldn't, he couldn't get any traction to go to the basket. So, I mean, these guys are young, but I think adding strength is going to be important up and down the roster for the most part of the guys who are currently available right now, with the exception of, like you said, Malcolm Brogdon. But um, I guess we can transition from that very happy topic right into the sit. So I'm going to let you go first. What are you just absolutely benching? Sit is enough already. That's how we're translating this. Oh, um, I have two. One that's like a little bit um, more lighthearted. The number one, like, I mean, it's just kind of uh, Goga screens. I'm sorry. I, I I put them in parentheses, not parentheses, in quotation marks because I don't think he made contact on a single screen in the two games. And I know part of it, like slipping is like a very real part of the game, but you can't slip every screen. Like, uh, I mean, the, especially it felt like, um, you know, especially when, when Orlando had some of their lengthier lineups out, like their starting lineup, like when it was just, just Suggs or, or just Cole Anthony playing the point and they didn't have two guards in the backcourt. We're running like Franz and uh, Okiki and then the two bigs. It was like, it, I mean, they could not get any trash at the point of attack without a solid screen. And I, I just, all I could think about every time that Gogo slipped the screen, I was like, imagine if Terry Taylor was there. Like, imagine if Terry Taylor was setting up the screen and there was some kind of penetration in the paint because there was like in that first game, like I, I made a note of this. It was literally uh, a couple minutes into the third quarter. The Magic had 66 points and 38 of them were in the paint and the Pacers had less than 20 paint points. And that's not everything, but like, I just am very interested to see what this team looks like without a dynamic screener right now. Maybe that'll change, but even with Miles, like we've talked about Miles, like Miles is not creating a lot of separation with the screens. And especially if he's rolling to the basket more, um, like we've talked about, like he's not going to be creating that level of separation if he's also rolling to the basket, just because we've seen that before. Um, so that is something that I'm like, uh, I'm very curious about because that, that was an issue during these two games, at least for, I'm not trying to like be unfair to Tyrese, but I do think like not having a good screen can really hinder what he's doing in terms of getting downhill. Um, and then my, no, are, oh, can sorry, I, can I jump yeah, off that ahead. one first? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's funny because, I mean, it's not funny, but like last year when I wrote the Goga setting non-screens article, I wrote it in response to the game that they played against San Antonio when Miles and Sabonis were both hurt and he was the starter and they had the worst finishing that they had had all season at the rim. And a lot of times you could tell it's because the Karras and Malcolm weren't getting any separation coming off the picks and then their guy was just being able to contest them at the basket in addition to Jakob Pertl. So... Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would made a slight joke in the fourth quarter of that game when there was like seven minutes to play because like it was it was basically garbage time. But um, at that point, they had 20 paint points, I think, 20, 20 or 22. And I was like, it's it's um, their season low for for paint points is in jeopardy right now because the the lowest amount they had scored in the paint all season was 26 in Cleveland, the game when Kiefer and Dwayne Washington were starters, like when they were really depleted from COVID, they only scored 26. And I think Sabonis had like 16 of them. So basically the guards like never got into the paint. So, I mean, I think that that was somewhat predictable when you didn't have Malcolm and the magic are switching and have decent length, but it kind of highlights the Malcolm thing again, because depending upon how they see him, he's the only person that really consistently, I mean, Lance to a degree going to his right, at least 
can get into the paint and actually apply rim pressure. I mean, Ajax, when he's a lob threat, applies rim pressure in terms of what he opens up, but in just guards. So with Goga and, and bringing up Terry Taylor, like I maintain my position that, that Terry is number one on the screening power rankings. But the other thing that Terry does that could help Goga if he's not, if he's just going to be, you know, setting air picks and clipping people is that Terry sprints into screens and also gets out of them quickly when he slips them. If, if you're running into the screen, whether you make contact isn't quite as important because you're already separated from your defender. So then when you go up there, the guard is, is going to have more time to not be already embarking with the big the minute they come off the pick. If Goga would go into the screens a little bit faster, I think that would help him somewhat too. And then I think that the coaching staff is trying to uh, mitigate this because I've noticed that they've added, I didn't see them run this a lot prior to the trade, but they're running like thumb action between the big. So like, this is one way that Terry had a drive, I believe in the first game where um, like Jalen will set a down screen or a Ram screen to screen Terry into the screen for the ball handler. Sometimes they'll even become a, a, that'll become a double drag with both of them. So you're delaying that person's defender by screening before for the screener, before they screen and then having them come off too. So I think that the coaching staff is somewhat aware of what the screening situation is because I wasn't seeing Miles and Sabonis do that a lot for each other before. I mean, when both of them were healthy, it was just let Sabonis set the picks because he's going to do advantage creation for us in that respect. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely something to watch because as it turned out, Dwayne Washington did get a little teardrop in the paint. So they scored 28 paint points and avoided having their season low in that first game. But, I mean, you could tell a difference when Malcolm was out there versus when he wasn't in the first game. I mean, they still didn't have a high total of paint points in the second one either, but the guards were struggling to get paint touches in that first one for sure. Definitely. Uh, Do you want to hear my, uh, my little mini aside that's going to get me absolutely murdered? No, I'm ready for it. Let me have it. Tyrese Halliburton absolutely traveled on that three, the Isley game, like 100% traveled. Like, I do not know how it was not called. It was an extremely obvious travel. I'm glad the Pacers won the game. You cannot get that was 100% of travel. I'm so like, I'm, I was not going to be that guy and clip it on and put it on Twitter. But as soon as I saw it happen, I was like, oh, that's a travel. And I went back and I watched it multiple times. Like, yeah, it's a travel. So you don't like where he gathered the ball and took the, took the steps. You're, you're being highlight ref truther. I am being, a, it was a travel. He never put, he did not put the ball back on the floor. Like somebody closed out and he took two steps to his left. I'm like, that's a travel, bro. Like he didn't, he did not touch the ball on the floor once. I think sometimes, I mean, I think I've seen an instructional video. I'd have to watch it back and look at it again, but sometimes like you can move laterally. I mean, James Harden does that a lot with two, two steps based on how you gather and move off of it. Like Tyrese, does that fairly often i will i will have to watch it back now that now that you've brought it back and yelled at clouds and (laughs) maybe i'm wrong i don't know it just like i i watched it and i seriously hate when people do this so i'm being a hypocrite but like i don't know i had to i had to add some zest uh but it felt like in my bones i was like oh that's a travel so i feel like there's a lot of things that we could sit from this series so (laughs) yeah um, like, like I said, I don't need to harp on Goga again. He was the lowest hanging fruit. Um, the third quarters felt like something that could just be collectively erased from our memories because the Pacers over those two games averaged 18 and a half points during that quarter shot 35% from the field overall, 15% from three committed seven and a half turnovers per game and only had six assists. And they attempted 31 total field goal attempts and were a, a league low minus 27 in those two. So just throwing that out there that we could probably easily bench those. I don't know how in the first game they had 10 turnovers and only attempted 12 shots like that. That was uh, quite a quarter to behold. Um, another one that I've kind of strangely noticed that I would like to sit and I don't like being body language police, but I don't know if I've seen a player react in a more animated way than buddy heel does when his teammates make a mistake (laughs) yeah like when goga got that hooking foul he about lost it 
Um, he threw a pocket pass to Ajax that Ajax mishandled, and the turnover I think was kind of wrongly accredited to Buddy when it probably should have been Ajax's turnover. But like he got very upset that Ajax didn't handle the pass. There was another moment where he was like scolding, and this this goes back to my basketball icks. And at a certain point, I might have to write this as an article because their transition defense off of opponent steals when an opponent gets a steal continues to be dreadful. I think they rank like 26th in the NBA in points per possession in those situations. And prior to through games played through the last game before the trade, the Pacers ranked ninth in that category and they've fallen over these last, like however many eight games to 22nd, just over that stretch. And it's a lot of it is because they do unnecessary movements and decisions and transition. They sometimes go for rebounds when they just need to get back. And at least if you're going to go from the rebound from the corner, you need to run on a loop up through the free throw line. So if you don't get it, you're already headed in the other way. And they run on a straight line just from the corner or Sometimes somebody will be talking to a referee and they don't get back or they'll gamble once the other team already has the rebound and like try to steal a pass. And I just want them to get back in transition off the turnovers. But um, no, I think what I'm going to have to go for as my pick and I we will both add the caveats that we are not doctors. We are not trainers, but I am sitting the fact that Malcolm Brogdon played 17 straight minutes at the end of game two. He You're played doing the in. opposite of what Malcolm did. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sitting him because 17 straight minutes, the entire fourth quarter, the entire overtime, and like, yes, he had a takeover moment. What did he end up having in that fourth quarter? I think he had 14 points. He was living at the line. He made a couple threes. Like, nobody, I'm not going to take away what Malcolm Brogdon did. They would not have won that game if Malcolm Brogdon did not play. And, you know, Something that was interesting, you brought that up about Tyrese potentially traveling on that off-ball three. This was the first game that Brogdon and Halliburton have played in together where Brogdon had a higher time of possession for the game than Tyrese Halliburton did. And I wasn't surprised at that at all by when I looked it up because, for one, Brogdon played more minutes. I mean, he played 40-plus minutes in that game versus against Boston and OKC. He was on a minutes restriction. So there was more opportunity for him to log time of possession. But it felt like Tyrese was playing off ball quite a bit, even with Buddy. When Buddy was out there, Buddy was doing more in pick and roll situations, it felt, especially down the stretch than what Tyrese was doing, which I found kind of curious. But Brogdon had 7.2 minutes of possession in that game compared to 6 for for Tyrese, which was a departure from what we have been seeing. I mean, Tyrese was almost doubling him up against the Thunder and the Celtics. But to see Brogdon, point being, be the – primary ball handler down the stretch in that setting and also be defending Franz Wagner down the stretch for most of that game and then be playing 17 minutes straight when I know they talked before the game that he was going to be able to play in fourth quarters which he did not play in the fourth against the Thunder he did not play in the fourth against Boston and that he was okay to be able to do more um it was just a little bit surprising that they went that hard for a win against the Orlando Magic when he's been being monitored for Achilles soreness for weeks. Like, I don't know. What was your thought when he played all of those minutes straight? I was pretty surprised. Oh, I mean, I guess I was more uh, like, why is that happening? And less surprised because that's kind of been the story all year, but no, it was weird. I don't, I don't really get that. And I'm, you're, I mean, I feel like people probably get annoyed at how much we like try and be nuanced and, ca- and caveat stuff, but that's us. So get, get used to it. But like, I just don't get it. Like, Okay, he clear like I mean same thing with Duarte. Like I thought Duarte was clearly hobbled in that first yes. game. Like I mean he looked hobbled against Boston. Yeah, exactly. And like it just I know that there's there's levels to it. Obviously, you know, you want guys to play. Pain management is a thing. You can play through some injuries. Um, but also like I it just it's just weird, especially in, in this season. Like, yeah, why does there have to be some yeah, I, I can't disagree with you at all on that. It's it's kind of I mean, it feels funny. like it's happened a lot. And like I know Rick said after the game that he talked to Malcolm at the end of regulation and asked him, like, do you need a minute? And Malcolm was like, No. And then he also referenced that like, you know, playing 
in this type of a season where, you know, it's not necessarily about winning. It's about, you know, what progress some of these young guys make and getting opportunities can be hard for a veteran type player when you're not going to be in the playoffs and like allowing him to continue playing and, and get a win when he had played so well in the fourth grade quarter. Like I get it. It just felt unnecessary. It just felt somewhat risky, which again, I'm not a trainer. They might've said it's perfectly fine, but he had just not played in the second night of a back-to-back and they had not played him at all in fourth quarters. And then he played the entire fourth quarter and the entire overtime. It just, it just felt a little bit unnecessary to me. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on a quote that was said after the game. So let me pull this one up. Um, They were asked about Malcolm Brogdon's performance. And again, I don't want to take anything away from Malcolm. I thought he was fantastic in that game, like deserves all the kudos. But afterwards, Rick Carlisle says, quote, he's the best all around player on our team. When he plays, it's a different ball game. The guy can guard any position on the floor. He can play point. He can play two. He can play the three. He can even play five or, or four or five on offense. He's that smart. Uh, well, I mean, I guess just to, to play devil's advocate, I guess he's not wrong. Like Malcolm definitely is. And I, well, I shouldn't say definitely. Like, I think you can make a case for Tyrese too. But when you add in Malcolm's defense, I do think he's probably the best all-around player on the team. But like, I just find this a very interesting course shift after never being interested in calling anybody the best player on the team the last two years. And now we're saying this about Malcolm after all the stuff has come out post trade deadline about the Pacers potentially moving him. And um, it's curious. It's very curious. And I don't know what to make of it. And I don't know if I, I don't want to say I don't like it, but if they're doing it strictly for the purpose of upping his trade value, I do not like it. Yeah. I don't like it. If that's, if that's the reason, I mean, I think Rick Carlisle wanted to give him credit for the very good game that he had. But this yeah, man I mean, cannot defend one through five. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, before we even parse through all of those statements, like exactly what you said, I mean, we've talked about it how many times on this podcast that among Karis, TJ Warren, Malcolm, Turner, and Sabonis, there was never any hierarchy placed. And I know that this is, he didn't say just the best player, he said best all around player. So I want to be clear there that he might have just, you know, for ev- all, all the things like, versatility wise, maybe that's what we're getting at here, but this team has gone out of their way, not to put best, any, the best tag on anything, except for saying that, you know, what miles Turner is, is a rim protector around the rest of the league, not even by comparison. Like they don't like to compare their own players. It seemed like, and he came out very strongly and said that. And it it is kind of curious too, when you even look back at like what were, what was said about Tyrese after the trade was made. I mean, he was called a franchise caliber point guard. He was said, you know, it was said he was the point guard of our future. You could build around him for the next 10 years. Tyrese is that guy. I mean, he was even like lightly compared um, to being able to get, you know, like I think that it was mentioned like Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck and what they were for the Colts and that you could build around Tyrese in that similar way and blossom into something here with the Pacers. And I'm not saying any of that's incorrect either. And I I can differentiate the difference between talking about Malcolm's versatility and talking about Tyrese in that way. It just feels like somewhat of a shift and somewhat unnecessary, I guess I would say. Um, because I mean, I noticed people in the replies when Scott shared part of this quote, somebody was like, well, then why did you, trade Sabonis for an upgrade at the point guard position if Malcolm Brogdon's your best player. And it is kind of hard to sort through some of that. Like I understand why they, why they traded for Tyrese Halliburton. Like clearly if you can get a guy on a rookie deal who has as much upside as he does, you do that every time. But like to then come out and say that the guy who is already your existing point guard is your best all around player is a little bit confusing. And then when you get into the further things that he said, like, do you think that Malcolm can guard any position on the floor? No. I mean, what, what footage do we have to, to prove that? Like, and not to be rude to him, like he's, he's a quality defender when he's, when his usage is lower. Like, I mean, even then, like last, uh, I mean, two nights ago, I keep saying last night, two nights ago, like I thought his defense was solid. It wasn't anything crazy, but like part of that too is like, okay, he's doing a ton. Like they were asking him to do a lot in that game. Uh, and I think, yes, when he's able to be more of an off ball guy, like, like we, I mean, like we talked about in the Boston game, I thought he yeah. played pretty good defense in the Boston game. Like that was some of the best defense we've seen him play this season. And part of that is, you know, not having to run as much 
at least to the level that he was early, earlier in the year, but he's not quick enough laterally to guard most ones. I mean, asking him to guard fours is asking a lot. Like, and, and I mean, I've just never seen him guard a five other than like on a random, like if he gets sealed in transition or something. And even then that doesn't happen often. So I just, that's going. I have, I have seen him guard the five. Um, they tried to do that. If you remember up in Minnesota, when miles Turner was out, they assigned. Oh my God. to Carl Anthony towns. And I think that we can all remember what the results of that were. <laughs> it was not great. And, and there was reason to do it. Like I understood why they did because strangely enough, especially over the beginning portion of the season, Carl Anthony towns struggled more against smaller defenders than he did bigs. And I think that was in part why they did it so that they could double. But um yeah, I mean, the results of that weren't super good. I don't really feel comfortable with him guarding lightning quick guards. And maybe this is splitting too many hairs, but I mean, that's what was said. And then to say that he could even play the four or five on offense. Um, the only time I remember ever seeing Malcolm Brogdon do anything like that was last year in that game that I talked about earlier with Goga. Um, when they played the Spurs in that game, Goga hurt his ankle midway through. Turner and Sabonis were already out. And I forget, I think O'Shea was in foul trouble. And there was actually like a five minute span in that game where Malcolm Brogdon did play the five and he was used as the screener a couple times and they put him in a zone and he was having to box out Jakob Pertl. And I like tweeted, like, we need to remember the time that Malcolm Brogdon played center. And so, so, I mean, it did briefly happen, but like, I guess after reading this quote and the next game, I want to see Malcolm Brogdon on the short roll. I think that we deserve getting to see that. Like if he can play the four or the five, which I mean, there have been occasions where they've posted him, but certainly not against fours or fives, or, you know, there's a lot of games left against really imposing big men. The Pacers still have a game against the Nuggets. Um, they play the Sixers twice at the end of the season. I don't know how meaningful those games will be depending upon what Philadelphia's seeding situation is. Um, Sacramento is coming to town. So I guess Brogdon can guard Sabonis and Embiid and Jokic. God, I hope not. I, I mean, really... he did guard. I do. He did guard Jokic one time last year in Denver when Nate Bjorken came out of a timeout and put him as the shadow in triangle and two on Jokic. Oh, God, that was a that was an awful game. I forgot about the. I would have liked to forget about that game. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I guess my main overall take is like I think that Malcolm deserved all of the praise for his performance in that game. I just not sure that. Like, like you said, like, I don't know that it's because of trade value, but if, if that was influencing at all, like, I just think some of that, um, like through fact checking, I'm not sure is completely describing what the situation is and feels a little bit much when it could have just been like Malcolm Brogdon was fantastic tonight. We would not have won this game without him. That's the thing. It just felt fake. Like I'm okay with like, praise the hell out of guys. I'm all for that. I wish the team would do it more, but don't lie. Like that, that's just like, guys know when you're lying. Like that one is so clear. Like if I'm Malcolm Brogdon, I'm like, bro, I cannot guard fives. What are we talking about here? Like what, what is going on? When have I ever played the five on offense? Like what, what is going on? It's just, it, it was weird. I, I remember I said that to you yesterday. I was like, what, what is this team, man? Also, are, are we both just, uh, are we also up for playing for the Polish national team this summer? Or, or what's up with that? I mean, maybe we should consider covering the Polish national team. Yeah, that caught me by surprise. I actually saw that overnight from the European uh, news outlet where I shared it. And it was obviously not in English. I'm like, maybe I'm not understanding this because I tried to translate with Google Translate. I'm like, I don't know that I fully get this. And then later on, Euro Hoops did translate it. And yeah, effectively said that Malcolm, which I do remember him saying at media day that he had taken two trips last summer, one as part of his um, Brogdon family foundation, where he was in Africa and did like some video vlogs based on where they were building wells and stuff in the various cities that they do work in. And then he said that he went to Poland and I think Switzerland. And I remember thinking, Oh, you know, that's an interesting trip. And then it said in this report that, while he was over there that he trained with somebody from the Polish national team and started thinking that he would want to put in papers and I guess is moving in that direction, which is another curious thing because, you know, Malcolm, just from an injury standpoint, I always want guys like when, you know, when it was Boyan Bogdanovich or, you know, Sabonis or Miles Turner playing for Team USA, like I want guys to be able to represent their countries if they want to in international competition. I don't really necessarily like it if teams try to block that. 
But in Brogdon's case, it did come out a little bit out of left field, given what his injury situation is. I know that Eurobasket's happening, um, I believe, in September. So if he's going to play, that that would be some extra wear and tear beyond um, what he's already been through this season. So, yeah, I was a little bit surprised, I guess, that his significant other has family that lives in Poland. But in order to play, you either have to have um, ancestral roots in that country or you have to apply for dual citizenship. So. I would assume that he thinks he's applying for dual citizenship. I mean, I'll wait to hear what Malcolm Brogdon's response is. I'm sure somebody will ask him at practice or the next game if he does indeed intend on playing, because it is interesting because um, Evan Gualberto, who I know who coaches and does uh, great stuff on YouTube, he pointed out, you know, Igor Milicic, of course he'd want to play for the Polish national team because Igor Milicic is the the coach. And, you know, he is very well renowned as a, a European head coach and, and how creative he is and what they do defensively with, matchup zone and hedging schemes and other stuff and it just so happens that his son plays for virginia i feel like everything with malcolm brogdon always leads back to virginia so right so yeah <laughs> yeah there you go that's hilarious well yeah i mean justin anderson played at virginia and he he got an opportunity here so i don't know if you played at virginia there's a chance um that's really funny i hadn't thought about that well caitlin is there anything else you want to head on from these two games before we get out of here I think we have thoroughly covered them. People are yeah. going to have plenty to listen to before the Pacers play against another one of the quote unquote. I mean, I don't know that I should call them tanking teams, but teams that are definitely not making the play in tournament in the Detroit Pistons tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cade Cunningham has been playing really well recently. Um, so I'm interested to see how that matchup looks. I'm curious to see who gets to draw off playing against them. They just said, I mean, Pistons have been kind of fun recently, uh, depending on, you know, a uh, relative level of fun, I guess you should say they're three and two out of the all-star break and they've beaten some solid teams. So we will see how it goes. Uh, Detroit has given them problems in the past, so should be interesting. Caitlin, as always, this was a blast to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. If you made it this far, you've listened to about 50 minutes of talking about two games against the Orlando Magic, and I applaud you for that uh, or, <laughs> or, uh, or think that you should get help. But we will, we'll see. I appreciate you to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. Most importantly, have a good rest of your day. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Have a good rest of your day.